The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Trade, that is certainly right back on the front burner today. We welcome Michael McKee, international economics and policy correspondent for Bloomberg News. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio uh, here in New York. Michael, thanks for joining us. What do you expect to hear from Mr. Lighthizer today in front of the Senate Finance Committee? Well, we, uh, we've seen some headlines out from his uh, text, and he's going to, uh, of course, tout the president's trade accomplishments because that's his job. Uh, the most interesting aspect of uh, the text so far is that he suggests that the uh, new NAFTA treaty, the USMCA, should be approved. They expect it to be approved because it was written with Democratic opposition in mind. Now, we know that the Democrats are, are holding up some uh, discussion of it because they want changes to be made. Lighthizer seems optimistic about the prospects for it, and he does a little bit of a sales job for it. Uh, what will be most interesting is in the questions and whether the Democrats lay out specific terms they want. Well, also joining us is uh, Sean Donnan, senior trade reporter, uh, joining us from D.C. So the backdrop, though, of course, is the tweet from President Trump that he and Xi just talked on the phone and they're going to have a meeting at the G20. And then Xi, through CCTV, also reaffirming that they're going to have a meeting. Um do we believe now that this is actually moving forward, John? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, it's really interesting developments that we've just had in the last hour. Uh, I think the most interesting thing about Bob Lighthizer's uh, prepared testimony is what's missing, and that is any mention of China, really, uh, in there, any, any, any addressing it of, uh, as one of the big issues. And, and it, it's the elephant in the room, really, uh, in terms of, of U.S. trade policy. But he's clearly going to be asked uh, about the president's tweet this morning. Uh, and uh, like, as you say, the, the, the Chinese announcement as well, that there's phone call has taken place. That's a big development. Uh, there were a lot of people questioning whether or not, uh, whether uh, such a meeting might even take place at, at, at the G20. There were some people who thought that the things were just too tense right now. Uh, so it's a good sign that they're, that, that they're going to meet, but we should remember uh, that there's a big gap between the two sides uh, in these talks r right now, and uh, it's unclear how much uh, President Trump and Xi Jinping can close that gap in just one meeting. So, Michael, it seems like we've, um, in terms of trade, uh, things are on a little bit better track with Mexico. It now seems like uh, China may uh, be on a similar track. How do you think the markets are kind of pricing right now global trade? Because it's been such a driver of uncertainty in the markets really since the fourth quarter of last year. Yeah, it's very hard to price it because you don't know with President Trump what he's going to do from day to day. Uh, they've put into uh, earnings and expectations about as much as they can in terms of what a trade war would mean. But there has been this reluctance to fully price it in because they don't think it's really going to happen. The president has sort of pushed back against that, but then uh, you know, with China, but then with Mexico, he raised the prospect and then he dashed it again. So 
you know, how far will he really go? That's uh, a question. If I were on the Senate <laughs> committee, I suppose I would ask that question. But I don't know if you get a straight answer from Bob Lighthizer, because I don't know if he knows the answer. And, uh, you know, the, the standard answer is, of course, the president is going to follow through. But it's not in his interest in uh, 2020 terms to have an economy that is going down, to have a stock market that's rolling over. So there's uh, definitely an incentive for him to try to move forward with Xi Jinping. And that may be just enough to carry the market for a while. They may not reach a deal, as Sean says, but they may at least say we're going to keep talking and that will get priced in as good news. But if the economy is holding up, and Luke Kawa has a great piece on the Bloomberg right now, talks about how U.S. equities are outperforming the rest of the world yet again, our GDP is better than other countries yet again, inflation expectations rolling over still higher than like Europe, Germany, for example, and Japan. I mean, if it's the best house in a bad block thing, is that enough to sustain? <laughs> well, for a short time. I mean, the problem is we don't know exactly what is causing the weakness that we see in the United States. We know that in Germany, for example, in Europe, that trade is weighing heavily on them, and that's an issue. And so you you would figure if they can reach some sort of trade accommodation that things might get better. I was uh, saying earlier that I think the president may have just tweeted Jay Powell out of having to do a really I stole that. dangerous job. I totally job. stole that from you right on this radio. <laughs> because, Everybody, thanks. Because, thanks uh, uh, you know, now it, you, got, you got to wait. You got to wait and see what happens before you make any monetary <laughs> policy decisions. Exactly. Or, or put a trade on for that matter. Just think about a trade one. Put something on this morning and how he's, uh, that trade's been whipsawed. Um, Sean, I want to bring you back. And just as it relates to China, just give us a sense of where you think the Chinese negotiators are in terms of their position right now. How confident did they feel as they potentially sit down with the U.S.? Well, I think the, the, the real danger in these negotiations right now is that both sides feel like they're in a, in, in a strong position. You've heard the, uh, the argument that the, everything's hunky-dory in the United States and it's the, you know, or it's the best house on a bad block, if you will. Uh, I think the Chinese kind of feel similarly that they're not in a bad position and that, if anything, they have more power uh, to pull the levers they need to and respond to any slowdown in the economy. We heard that from Yi Gang, uh, the governor of the People's Bank of China in a Bloomberg interview a couple of weeks ago where he said they had lots of room uh, to respond to, to, to any slowdown. And whereas the U.S. may have uh, less room, and as Donald Trump keeps complaining, uh, he doesn't have the ability to, to pull the levers directly uh, to, to boost the economy w when he needs to. I think why I'm just, look, I was in China for 10 days uh, uh, just back uh, a week or so ago, and, and one of the common themes you hear on the ground in China is that people are just bracing themselves and getting ready for a more protracted trade conflict, and they're ready to adapt. Right. Sean Donnan, thank you so much. Sean is senior trade reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us in our Bloomberg uh, 991 studio in Washington, D.C. Michael McKee, international economics and policy correspondent for Bloomberg News, joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. I want to move on to a story here that's just crossing the tape. Uh, the White House uh, explored the legality of demoting Fed Chairman Powell. Uh, to help us explore this new topic, we welcome Salia Motion. Uh, she is of a Bloomberg News. Salia, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Give us a sense of what you're reporting right now. 
Yeah, so sources have told us that back in February, just about two months after the president discussed whether he could fire um, Jerome Powell, uh, the White House General Counsel's Office, the team of lawyers, explored the legalities around um, stripping Jerome Powell of his chairmanship and leaving him just as a governor, which would allow the president then to either nominate another existing governor, he has four to choose from, two that he himself placed on the board, um, to become chairman. Because a Fed chairman always has two jobs. They are the chair and they are a governor, one of seven governors. The other option that the president would have um, if he was able to uh, demote, uh, essentially, uh, Jerome Powell in that manner is to nominate uh, someone to fill one of the two open governor seats and then make that new governor a chairman. Celia, how unprecedented would a move like this be? So this has never been tested. We don't actually even know if it's possible, and I imagine that is what the White House was exploring. Um, it is we, legal experts are telling us that this would most likely go to the courts if uh, Chair Powell decided that he wants to challenge Trump and say that he is not allowed to demote me this way. Uh, the courts would then have to look at the Federal Reserve Act and try to interpret it. But um, this has never actually happened before. So is there any evidence that this review of this type of motion, the legality of it, was in fact directed by President Trump? Is there any evidence of that? No, there is no evidence of that. And there's also no evidence that the president is at this very moment considering taking any action against Powell like this. Do we, do we know how far along this process got? Is there any sense of how widespread it was and maybe how deep the, uh, uh, the consideration was? What I can tell you and what we reported in the story that's on the terminal today is that um, the, a ruling was made uh, by the White House lawyers on uh, on what this kind of strategy would look like and whether this is a viable option. And that ruling has not been revealed even on background by sources. We do know that um, the Wall Street Journal in, in uh, at the beginning of April reported that Trump told Powell in a phone call in March that he said, you know, I guess I'm stuck with you, which, you know, take that you know, take from that what you want. Any sense now? I mean, uh, you know, the White House, they've not not commenting, presumably, um, but just kind of what ne next steps might be um, for this issue. Absolutely not. They're not commenting at all. And it looks like, uh, you know, we're not expecting any next steps. The, the legal um, study has been done and it's there just in case the White House needs it or if, if the Fed um, chooses to uh, do their own research. We don't know. Interesting. So, Celia, just, you know, finally here, just the obviously, as you mentioned, and as you reported in this story, uh, the relationship between Chairman Powell and, Chair, and President Trump remains uh, difficult. What is the sense of how the the um, the commission itself is actually functioning right now? Does it feel like despite the tensions, the commission is still uh, or that you have the, still kind of getting work done? Yeah, you know, so far the Powell has said, or the, the chair has said that there is no political inf influence. He is not going to be influenced by the president or his comments or any phone calls that they have behind closed doors. Um, the We can also see that the Fed did an about face of monetary policy in January. Markets were sort of roiled after the rate cut and the, the um, hawkish outlook for rates that was given in December. And in January, we start to see the Fed pull a U-turn on that policy. And now we're, you know, Markets are expecting, a lot of economists are expecting, not a rate cut tomorrow, but something to be signaled and a, a possible rate cut in July or later this year. So 
It does make you think that uh, maybe Trump is getting his way. We can't really know um, whether that is because of what Trump said or whether that's just um, the Fed independently making those uh, decisions. Salaya, thank you so much for uh, this reporting of this uh, important story. Salaya uh, Mosin, uh, Bloomberg News, uh, on the phone with us. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The Federal Reserve's Open Market Committee meets today and tomorrow. Uh, the market is eagerly awaiting comments tomorrow from Fed Chairman Powell. To get a little preview of what we might hear, we welcome Ira Jersey. Ira is Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us from the BI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. Ira, thanks so much for being with us. What do you expect to hear from Chairman Powell tomorrow, given what we saw out of the ECB this morning? and even a follow-up tweet by President Trump about the euro. What do you expect to hear tomorrow? Yeah, good morning. So I think a couple of things. I think, firstly, the Fed is going to have to be more dovish, and just in general. Um, so you look at things like inflation expectations, both survey measures and from the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities Market, and uh, they are going to have to acknowledge that inflation expectations are well anchored um, and uh, and even moving lower. So, so, so that that's one thing that you could look for in, in the first sentence. The, the second is I, I think that the market that he's not going to be quite as dovish maybe as the market is anticipating at the moment. I do think that. There's going to be a dovish tilt. He's going to say that the balance of risks maybe is to the downside at the moment. But that doesn't mean that they're going to cut three times this year, which is largely priced into the market. So turning, so the stage was really set by Mario Draghi, or as President Trump refers to him, Mario D, which is just too cool for words. (laughs) Um, Do do you feel like the pressure that we were seeing in the bond market over in Europe, you know, negative 30 plus basis points uh, on the German 10-year is going to inform the Fed at all? Like, what do they do when they look at something like that? Yeah, so, uh, you know, Europe and the U.S., when it comes to the economy, has diverged a little bit, but but kind of the, the slowing trend in the economies is... Um, has continued in in both jurisdictions. Although in the U.S., we might avoid a more prolonged slowdown. I think in Europe, they're really worried about uh, about a more prolonged slowdown. They are worried that inflation continues to be... you know, not be able to pick up at all. The, the, I think the problem with all of these things is that there's forces at work that monetary policy can't help with. So the fact that you have low inflation and slow growth in Europe in particular and places like Japan is is largely a demographic issue. It's uh, aging populations and as well as low birth rates. So you, it's not so, you know the, the monetary policy that has to be easy uh, kind of just to keep things afloat, but how much easier can you get? So one of the things that Mario Draghi said overnight was if the economic outlook doesn't improve, we're likely to cut interest rates. And you know, so what's happened is you've had this rally in, um, in Europe, and, and basically you're now pricing for an additional rate cut by the ECB by the end of the year, and that's pulled all of these interest rates lower. So don't look at, don't look at European t- 10-year yields at negative 32 basis points as the, as the measure, because you can still buy a 10-year bond in Germany, fund it 
overnight in Germany and uh, and still make money, right? So that's that's the thing that we have to realize is that is that the carry from trades uh, is not necessarily as bad as it looks on the surface. Just seeing that it's you know negative thirty basis points. Ira, is there an argument to be made that the U.S. Fed should hold out on rate cuts as long as possible, perhaps even till the end of the year? They it, perhaps, and and I, I think that if. The data rebounds, as the, as the Bloomberg Economics team thinks, so Carl Riccadonna and, and his team, if the data rebounds, then there's not a reason for them to do that, which is one reason I think they will wait at least until July to see another set of data before they actually uh, consider cutting interest rates. Um, th- that being said, there's other things they can do. So, for example, one thing that would not surprise me um, is they could taper the quantitative tightening faster. So they could actually maybe end balance sheet reduction by the end of July, potentially. And something like that would be a dovish measure that they could take without actually uh, without actually cutting interest rates. So because the problem is, is that they don't have that many bullets. They, you know, the Fed in particular doesn't want to cut interest rates less than zero. I think Jay Powell was pretty clear about that a few weeks ago. So the thing is, if you can only cut interest rates eight times, you don't want to have to do that as your first step if you can avoid it. So do you think, so if they did that, say they opted for balance sheet uh, normalization now versus later, like, does the market like it? Is it dovish enough for them? Well, I, I think that, that risk asset markets would probably be more or less unchanged. I think, uh, I think the bond market is already priced for a lot of bad news and, and certainly for the Fed to cut. So I think if they did something like that and said, we're going to end quantitative tightening, but don't look for, but hint that there's not going to be an interest rate cut in July, I think the bond market, probably the two-year notes and, and the front end of the, of the market, short-term maturities, they probably go up in yield, but long-end maturities probably stay where they are, just on the idea that the Fed's not cutting enough with this negative sentiment uh, hanging around. And then a lot of this negative sentiment, of course, could go away very quickly, as you saw today. I mean, we were, we, we were up a lot more in the bond market, but then, you know, Donald Trump makes a tweet, and next thing you know, five basis points of that rally, today's rally, goes away. And Ira, just the she uh, agrees. Uh, President Xi agrees is coming on the redhead uh, headline coming across the, the tape. She agrees. U.S. China should keep uh, talking. So just confirming the uh, tweet from President Trump. So Ira, is there something here that maybe the market's missing? What would be, you know, just we've had so much volatility just the past. Well, let's just go today for for that matter. Where could the Fed or how could the Fed really surprise the market? Maybe even for, on the downside tomorrow. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, certainly, if the if the Fed cut tomorrow, that would be a huge surprise. Um, I think that, that would be, you know, really good at least temporarily for risk assets, and um, the the market is not a hundred percent priced for that. But I think if they were to cut tomorrow, then we would probably price out a cut in July. So you wouldn't, you'd see the very very short term market. So one month, three month T bills, for example, would move, but not necessarily two year notes very much because we're already pricing for two and a half. Uh, more than two and a half interest rate cuts by uh, by the end of this year. Um, could they could they suggest that they're going to could they cut fifty basis points? They could. I think right. that that would be highly highly unusual. Ira Jersey, thank you so much. Iris, chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone from the headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.